Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Kellen and I are super excited. This week, we actually got to sit down and have a conversation with Professor Tom Murphy. You may be familiar with Professor Murphy already, as some of his lectures and other content have been shared on the subreddit R Collapse many times. Tom got his PhD at Caltech in 2000, currently teaches physics at University of California, San Diego, and has spent the last 20 years testing general relativity via lunar laser ranging. His blog, Do the Math, lays out the energy-related challenges humanity will face in the future, and he recently released a free textbook on the subject called Energy and Human Ambitions on a Finite Planet, which you can find a link to in the episode description. Enjoy the interview. Okay, Professor Murphy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We are very happy to have you here. Great. Good to be here. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with your work related to energy crisis and potential collapse, how would you summarize what your message is? Well, really that we have to look at the future with open eyes and understand that our current place and time is pretty anomalous and we shouldn't use just our lifetimes to judge what the future will look like. Um, we're, we're kind of tearing through this planet's resources with reckless abandon and it's been a lot of fun, but we can't just keep doing that because... Uh, you know, it's, it's an inheritance. And once you spend the inheritance, where are you? So we need to really think about this and not just go blindly into some, uh, you know, future that we would not wish upon ourselves if we could only have seen that it was coming. And I'd like to at least spend some of our brain power thinking about where might this be going and be very quantitative about it, because that's, uh, you know, we, we we think of the future as something we can't really predict, which is to some degree, certainly true, but we have some tools 
And we can use those tools to understand uh, some fairly common sense uh, potential outcomes or at least risks. So I know that a lot of our listeners um, follow you and your work on your blog and some of the lectures, um, for example, on YouTube. When did this kind of all click for you and what made it click for you in the first place? Well, yeah, it was kind of a slow start in the sense that I, I guess I remember when I was a postdoc in Seattle being interested in at least understanding the portfolio of energy in our society and I, I talked to some people about it at that point. And when I got a chance in my job at UC San Diego to teach a course on energy and the environment, this was in 2004, I was eager to do that because I thought, okay, here's when I'm going to build this complete picture of where we are, where we're heading, what kind of replacements to fossil fuels we, we might envision in the coming century. And I was excited by it. I thought this is going to be a great learning experience. And I'm going to come out with a much clearer idea for where we're heading. And I came out of the process scratching my head. I was kind of confused. It just didn't look as straightforward as I, I thought it should be. And, you know, I I did a lot of numbers and calculations around it and saw that some things have a lot of potential and other things really are window dressing and can't really amount to much. Um, and And then every time I taught the course after that, I got a little bit deeper into it and became a little bit more concerned as I tried to kind of calculate myself out of the predicament and really was having trouble doing that. So around probably 2008, I was in this weird dual life mode where I I kept running my operation as a, a physics professor doing astrophysics research and pretended that that was completely the right thing to be doing. And then also very much concerned about where we're heading as a society and realizing that what I was doing as an astrophysicist wasn't contributing one bit to, to that uh, enterprise um, and, and our, our likely success in the future, except for the fact that I was still teaching this course and hitting a few students and, um, and just more broadly educating students how to think critically, which is of course an important thing to be doing. And then I started the blog in 2011, and that was when I kind of let it all out, you know, and, and started writing it down, uh, presenting it to the world, doing more calculations, things I hadn't really computed before. And really the whole time, it's worth knowing, I was trying to work out why I shouldn't be worried about this. And I never quite got there because it just, Every at every turn, I I run into things that worry me. So I'm curious. You mentioned those risks and those things that do worry you. Can you speak to that for those that aren't as familiar with your work? What what do you see down the road? I guess what I see down the road is that I I have started thinking of our current situation as being like a fireworks show. And we were all born in this fireworks show. That's all we've ever known, all we've ever seen. Everybody we've ever met has only ever known this mounting fireworks show. And that's not something that will last forever. It's all based on this very temporary phase in which we've developed the tools and the technology to spin down the inheritance very quickly uh, of natural resources. And so when I look at plots of, you know, what's the, the forest uh, coverage on the planet as a function of time or fish populations or 
almost any natural resource, it's just this monotonic decline. And where does that go? <laughs> you know, we can all do that kind of extrapolation. So I think that um, if I heard a lot of people all the time talking about what is truly sustainable and what we can afford to do long-term, I'm talking millennia. If I heard people constantly referring to those kinds of things uh, that, that are really, truly sustainable, I, I would go back to doing astrophysics because it's a lot of fun. Um, but I, I don't hear that. Um, I hear a lot of um, basically looking to the past. Okay, so in some sense, what worries me most is the inattention. I think we are capable of handling this major transition if we are uh, wise about it. I'm, I'm starting to be careful about using the word smart because smart is what got us here. Um, we need to be wise and understand that we shouldn't just do anything that comes to our mind and anything we can do and we have the, the wherewithal and cleverness to do that doesn't lead to a good long-term outcome. We need to understand what, what success in the very long term can look like. And I guess I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but one way that I've started to look at this is asking the question, do you wish that civilization is in its infancy or do you think that it's nearer the end than the beginning? And if you want it to be in its infancy, civilization is thousands of years old. You know, 10,000 years we've been doing agriculture and living in cities. And so if you want it to be in its infancy, you have to start thinking about tens of thousands of years. So anything that we can't still be doing in 10,000 years is unsustainable. And almost everything, if you look out the window, almost everything we do is unsustainable by that definition. So the risk is that we, we only are looking very locally, narrowly at this, this time in history and the recent past as our guide. And we're not really stepping back to appreciate that we are imperiling our own future because we're sort of chewing on the cord, the power cord to the life support system, because the earth and its ecosystem ecosystems, that, that is our life support. Um, we can't live without earth's flora and fauna, just period. So if we are wrecking that, um, we're wrecking our own livelihood. So I want to see more attention to that risk of completely dismantling piece by piece those very important uh, resources and services that we take for granted. So what does that look like for you? You just mentioned, um, you know, you like to think of this, this dismantling of that. And if we move forward um, intelligently and carefully, you think we can kind of push through this transition. What does the best case scenario for that transition look like for you if you got to control and, and make that happen? Well, I'm conflicted on that because I too am a member of this particular moment in, in uh, history and, and have become accustomed to our particular ways of life. And uh, so there are definitely a lot of things that I, I really would regret to, to have to give up. Um, 
But, you know, if I do think in this 10,000 year time frame and think of the things we can't still be doing, um, and as I said, almost everything we do today in terms of resource, our, our interface to the resource world, uh, almost everything we do today is unsustainable. So my thought is that a successful future is very much sort of dovetailed into natural ecosystems. And the closer we are to sort of living within nature's flows and, and, uh, and ecosystem services, the, the more likely we are to succeed long-term. And so I kind of picture, I was looking around online for some uh, graphics and images that might kind of capture this idea. And I stumbled across one of, um, of Bag End and Hobbiton where Bilbo Baggins and then Frodo Baggins live. And, you know, it's from, I guess it was a, a shot from the Peter Jackson uh, treatment of this, but it's just like little um, hobbit hole in a, in a hill with lots of plants around it. And it just sort of merges into nature. And I think that's part of my vision is that we need to be partners more uh, with nature. We've kind of built this artificial world that stands apart from nature and sort of dominates nature. That's a losing strategy in the long term. So what I hope is that we can maintain scientific knowledge, technology, but all in this all in this manner where everything that we do, we have to ask the question, what are the consequences to sustainability in the very long term for this particular technology or, or energy source or uh, activity? And really be judicious about saying no to some things that might seem like a lot of fun or might seem like a good thing. But if you really think in the long term, realize that maybe that's not so great. Yeah, and I'd say we've encountered that a lot. It seems like all of us have a problem with only thinking in the short term and not really looking down the road. If we don't change anything, if we just continue on our current course without any changes in our behavior, if we continue to kind of, like you said, dominate nature, what do you see that looking like or or what's going to happen? Well, I think what's very likely to happen in my mind is uh, global competition for the resources that remain. And if, if we approach this with the attitude of, uh, you know, separate nations in competition, um, we're going to be scrambling to try to beat out others to acquire and, and control those resources. Um, that looks like a bad end to me because we we're basically living on this island and it's actually kind of a small island now that we've achieved the the scale we're at now you know we have to have an island mentality we can't you know we're all in this together we're all in the same boat it's kind of like you know drilling a hole in somebody this you know somebody's portion of the boat doesn't help any of us um and so we need that all in it together mentality if we're going to succeed. And yeah, we, we don't have any adults in this world who are kind of minding the, the various children, the nation states, and sort of setting firm boundaries on what they can and can't do 
um, nobody has that kind of authority. And so I think we're, we're kind of, our political systems are not set up very, very well for that kind of challenge. And they never have had to be set up for that, that kind of challenge. This is new. And so if we don't come up with new approaches and recognize the importance of global cooperation, uh, we're going to be drilling holes in, in each other's parts of the boat. And that's just, uh, that's not going to help us. So as a follow-up question, and this may be one that uh, you don't really want to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, do you think it's going to happen that nations will come together, that people will come together and make the decisions necessary to be made, the cooperation that will have to be had in order to uh, in order to solve this in time or, or head towards that direction you want to see us head in? Or do you feel like at the rate and pace that we're going and the lack of change that we've seen up to this point that there's not much hope for that. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a central question. Uh, certainly very important. And, and one I think a lot about, and so I would say that, you know, th this is kind of a cheap answer, but I, I'll drill back to maybe something more profound, but as a physicist, I can say that it's not physics that's preventing success here. Um, it's people and it's, it's psychologies and, um, and, and, you know, human nature at some level. Now, are we, do I think we're capable of banding together and, and establishing global cooperation? I certainly can't rule it out. And I would love to see it happen. It can't happen without greater awareness. And it can't happen without acknowledging that collapse is a viable, you know, potential and maybe even likely. So until you're at that place, you're not going to take any of these things seriously. I, I don't want to underestimate the, the human machine's desire to survive and to keep as much prosperity and, and comfort as we can. I mean, that's a really big driver. And, and we've, we've kind of, uh, had a really long track record of, of putting off, you know, crisis uh, decade after decade after decade. And we will continue to do that as long as we possibly can. And, you know, one thing to be, I think, cognizant of is that humans are extremely adaptable. Um, and, and one way to sort of see that is a child that's born into whatever world they're born into, they see that world as normal. And so right off the bat, they can adapt to that world as they see it, as they find it and, and, you know, respond appropriately. So if the sort of slide is slow enough, we will have generational adaptation to kind of guide us through it. If it's rapid and chaotic and nonlinear and, you know, involves resource wars and, famine and all kinds of, you know, uh, nasty things, then I think it's kind of going to devolve into a, a real scramble. And, you know, I would hesitate to say where I put my, my money, you know, if I were betting on which outcome I think is more likely, instead of committing to that, I will say that it makes sense to me to spend my time and energy trying for the better outcome and trying to raise awareness 
so that we can avoid uh, a calamitous kind of uh, uh, descent into chaos. And, uh, you know, that would be a really shameful thing to, to do. And we, we, we can do better than that, but only if we come together, only if we recognize the risks. Yeah. And I love that you've taken that approach, that focus to trying to build awareness. I think that's a big reason for this podcast. And I'm curious, you, you've been having these conversations and presenting these kind of messages for several years now. What do you feel like makes the difference between somebody who is receptive to this kind of a message and those who perhaps uh, reject it or think that it's overly pessimistic or that, or that you're all gloom and doom. Yeah. I've been grappling with that for a while too, because I, I have not yet found a good way to reach the people who I'm not already reaching. Um, and I gave a talk recently, you know, the first, one of the first live talks I've given in a while and somebody came, uh, up to me afterwards and said that what, what I'm saying he thinks is dangerous. Um, and I was very, you know, interested in that, you know, cause I think, I think it's dangerous not to pay attention to these things. Uh, and so it brought up the question to me, well, what is he trying to protect? You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of this idea that everybody is the, is the hero of their own story, right? There are no, there are very few people who just want to be villains. Right. And so, what mentality does this person have that my message is dangerous? What is he trying to protect? And so if, if my message were heeded, we would sort of slow down. We would stop growth. We would, uh, you know, cut down our resource use. And so what would we lose from that? We would lose, you know, stock market gains. We might lose jobs. We might have, you know, partial employment, um, or, you know, a lot of people working part-time, but we don't need as much, you know, if we're not buying as much, we don't need to make as much. And so there are ways that this could all work out, but, you know, it threatens the, the familiar. And this person also gave me a number of examples from his lifetime. And, you know, he's had a fairly long lifetime at this point, uh, a number of examples of warnings that they were given, you know, maybe as kids or throughout his life that, they could have just ignored or apparently just didn't come, come to pass. And so this to him looks just like another one of those. And that is a very common reaction and a very sensible reaction, right? I mean, it's not illogical to look at your own past and say, well, we had this warning, we had that warning, they didn't materialize, but a, that's a very past looking uh, backward looking uh, viewpoint. And it basically doesn't leave room for sometimes things are different. And, you know, that I, I think that's a very evolutionarily adaptive uh, approach because the world usually is the same tomorrow as it was yesterday. That's, that's a, a really good model most of the time. So it makes sense that most humans would have this kind of, uh, um, you know, be grounded in, in real experience in the world as they've experienced it. So that makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't prepare us for the unusual events. So the other kind of aspect to this is I brought up the, I brought up with him the, the uh, parable of the, the boy who cried wolf. And most people 
take the lesson of that story. Don't raise false alarms. That's probably if you polled people, you know, 95% of people would say that's the primary lesson. And what about the lesson that the wolf came? You know, that people just gloss right over that, that there was an actual threat that really did come and it really did cause damage. Uh, And in that particular parable, I think it's just ludicrous that the adults whose um, responsibility it is to protect the town or the village against the wolf um, would just sleep on their duty. And when any, like if a bomb threat is called in, even if they think it's 95% likely it's a, it's a hoax, you know, they, they take it seriously and they do what they have to do in case it's real. That's the responsible approach. And so, um, this is one of those cases where, uh, you know, he was, this person was thinking I was crying wolf and that's a dangerous thing to be doing, but I think it's dangerous not to look at credible. I'm not making things up out of whole cloth. My concerns are, are rooted in, in, you know, some real analysis and, uh, yeah, to dismiss that is, I think, more dangerous than me possibly being wrong. I'd love to be wrong about this stuff. That would be a wonderful outcome. <laughs> but if if I'm not wrong about it, then we should really be thinking about our reaction. That's um, that's something Kellen likes to say on the podcast all the time is, I wish that we could be proved wrong in this whole thing. We could end the podcast and say, sorry, everybody. Just kidding. Go about your lives. Everything's good. Um, but it doesn't seem that way. And our thoughts and your thoughts seem to be around logic. Um, you know, we try and present information very logically. And I, I noticed in uh, one of your lectures that I saw on YouTube, um, you presented some of the math very logically. Um, you were talking about energy and you were talking about, you know, the amount of time that we have before we would have to cover every bit of land in solar in 100% efficient solar panels and then the entire earth and then all of the sun's energy. And it was remarkable how relatively little time that was. And it just puts into very quick perspective that growth is not sustainable forever. However, some people tend to think, well, if we can fix the energy problem, if we could come up with the perfect solution, uh, you know, nuclear fusion or something like that, that would give us unlimited energy, that we'd be great and that we could we could take on whatever came next. But you point out in that lecture as well, that whole analogy of the gerbil versus the pony. I wonder if you could um, maybe expound on that a little bit and explain maybe why um, why we don't deserve the pony. If we were to arrive at this happy state of having renewable energies and as much as we need from whatever source and, and we stabilize population and we've got this kind of Western standard of living across the world uh, for let's say 10 billion people or 12 billion or whatever the final number would be. um, So that we sort of cruise into this steady state, which is a lovely um, vision. Um, So if we have a larger world population and living at, say, U.S. standards today, which is, you know, something like a factor four or five higher than uh, the rest than the global average, then those factors combined give us, you know, somewhere between five and 10 times the 
energy throughput that we're using today, and that, you know, let's just go with the more conservative five times higher, that's a big deal to increase our demand on the planet by factor five. How are things going right now? Everybody sees that there are problems that we're having trouble dealing with at this you know, present scale, and they're global problems. And so I, I think of that, you know, uh, the responsible parent would, if, if their kid wanted a pony, first start with a gerbil, see if they can take care of it. If they can do that, maybe you graduate to a cat, which is maybe twice the responsibility. And if you can do that, maybe a dog, which you have to walk around, you know, there's more to it. And then if you can do that, you get a goat, which has a paddock, and then you're taking care of, of that, you know, closer to a pony, and then you can do a pony. So my statement is that we're not doing a very good job with our gerbil. Um, we're, we're kind of flubbing it. And so what makes us think that we can do something much more ambitious than we're doing today at, you know, a five times scale. When, if you look at, as I said, the plot, you know, if you plot the, the forest coverage of the earth or, you know, uh, any animal species population or something, uh, by and large, you know, globally, you just see these, these declines at the current scale. So what happens when we try to ramp that up by a huge amount? Um, and, and so it's more than just, let's say you had fusion or something that, you know, basically you think of as coming free or solar. Um, that's not the end of the story because what are we doing with all that energy? We're processing materials. We're shipping things around. We're manufacturing goods. We're, you know, we're interacting with the world. We're not just putting all that energy in a bank account somewhere and letting it sit. We're actively using that energy to manipulate this world in ways that aren't very good for all the animals and plants in this world. Um, we've mistakenly assumed that if it's good for us in the short term, then that's all that that's all we need to think about. That's good. But if it's bad for the rest of the planet, it actually is bad for us too. We just don't tend to see the consequences in a short enough time scale that we understand the consequences of our actions. And I think that's why for me, this stuff, when I talk to people, I can get fairly, you know, upset about, about, you know, reactions of people who aren't kind of at least acknowledging, I don't need them to agree, but if they're not acknowledging that there's a danger, I get really upset because I'm picturing all the devastation and the suffering that comes about, you know, human suffering in addition to ecosystem suffering uh, across the board suffering that I think will come from that attitude. And it's hard. It's really hard to live with that. Um, and so it, it does feel very real to me because I can kind of project myself into that future. And the only way to avoid that, you know, terrible fate is to at least acknowledge that it's a possibility and mitigate it and make sure that we close that door and it can't happen. But that's not where most people are right now. Yeah, I'll just say, I think it's interesting that, you know, we talk about how even if we were able to really crack the nut on energy and figure out nuclear fusion or whatever else it might be, that that wouldn't just suddenly fix everything. We would still be on a, a dangerous path. But even just to get to that point, I think sometimes people think 
as soon as we discover a new form of energy, we just snap our fingers and we're there. But I, I want to call out something. Um, it's a statement that you made in one of your blog posts. And I found it really interesting. You said related to the infrastructure we would need to build just to switch to a new form of energy. You said the construction of that shiny new infrastructure requires not just money, but energy. And that's the very commodity in short supply. Will we really be willing to sacrifice additional energy in the short term, effectively steepening the decline for a long-term energy plan? It's a trap. And, and I found that really interesting. I'd love if you could elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. This this energy trap idea. And but right before I do, though, I want to just point out that if we could snap our fingers and suddenly have access to as much energy as we want, if every jackass on the planet had as much energy as they wanted at their fingertips, what do you think is going to happen? Is it good? Is it good for the planet? Like that in some ways would be the worst possible thing. Uh, it's like giving a toddler a ray gun or something, you know, like what's going to happen? It's going to be bad. So um, yeah, the energy trap is I think an important concept and it, it is that, you know, there's no financing of energy in nature. We were used to sort of, if you want to do this ambitious project, you can finance the project and, you know, borrow money into the future because the thing will end up making money and it'll pay off in, you know, 10 years or whatever the payback time is. Energy doesn't work like that. It, it's just physics. You can't borrow it. You know, if a solar panel is going to produce a certain amount of energy in its lifetime, you can't borrow that energy that it's going to make to make the panel. Uh, you've got to come up with some upfront cash uh, in, in, the, in the sense of energy. So if we react kind of late and we're in this decline scenario uh, where we realize we have less energy available each year, uh, and, and then we sort of in typical human fashion as crisis responders say, oh my gosh, we actually, you know, this is real. The scientists weren't, you know, joking this time. Um, and we, we really need to build a new energy infrastructure Where's the energy going to come from? That's the thing that, you know, is, is causing the problem. So I do think that's a bit of a trap and it's politically really difficult because in order to initiate this new in infrastructure sort of plan, which, which might take a couple of decades to pull off, you're going to have to sort of ask everybody to tighten their belts a little bit while we're doing this. And even if you're successful at convincing people to start, which is itself really hard because, I mean, there are going to be endless debates about, well, which technology should we be using? I mean, when can we converge on anything in this country right now? And, you know, globally, a lot of countries are having similar problems uh, with sort of polarization. So it's hard to even decide. But if even if we got to that point, all it would take is some politician to come in and say, you know, a couple of years later, it's like, hey, are you tired of that tight belt? You want to loosen up? You want to, you know, we can give you some more energy, give you a little bit uh, more comfort or whatever, just to like me, I'll kill this program and, you know, we'll be free of it. And that's of course going to be very popular. Uh, and so in a democracy, uh, you know, I hesitate to, to sort of uh, bash democracy because I think it's an amazing form of, of government, uh, but it, it works extremely well in times of surplus, when you've got a lot of win-win situations that you can construct, but in a constrained environment, in a decline uh, scenario, 
ordinary people just want their comfort. They want their, their goods. They, they're not thinking necessarily for uh, about long-term and global good. And, and so democracies are going to have a lot of trouble, I think, um, grappling with, with some of the, the constrained, you know, planetary limits issues that we're, we're facing. So you've, you're kind of alluding to this idea that, um, to avoid collapse, um, we kind of have to collapse as is we have to give up, um, a lot of the comforts, a lot of the growth and, and a lot of the materialistic things that we're used to, which in and of itself is, is a bit of a, a collapse. Is that something that you think is necessary? I guess going back to your sort of um, optimistic view of what the best future could look like, do you think we can do it with as many people as we have now? Do you think that the the decline that we'd have to go through to get to the point that you're referring to, what would we have to give up to get there? And how quickly do you think that would have to to happen? Yeah, that that's something I definitely think about. And, and uh, it's a good question. So I, I think that if, if we are to succeed, it can't be in the mode that we're doing now. And so something has to change it, at least if, if I'm correct in, in my assessment of the situation where we're heading, uh, something pretty major has to change. We can either be in control of that, or we can let the chips fall where, where they, where they may and, and deal with it. But I, I think we would much rather be in control and do this, uh, you know, somewhat wisely, but yeah, it does mean changing our habits, changing our expectations. Uh, if, if you recognize that one of the central things is we can't have this many people using this much, you know, resources, then obviously there are two dials there, number of people or amount of resources we use. And I'm very reluctant to suggest that we do anything in a controlled way to change population. Okay. That's just going to like, you got to let that go. And, and so the one thing that we do have a knob that's, you know, a lot less objectionable is how much resources do, uh, uh, do we use? How many, uh, you know, or does each person use? So that's something we're, we have a lot of personal control over. I mean, this is, in some ways, a place where I can find some optimism because I reduce my own energy footprint and, you know, not just energy, but consumed goods and all kinds of things. Um, I reduced it dramatically by factors of, you know, three, four and five uh, over the last decade or a few decades. And it really just started with awareness. It started with concern and awareness and measuring. So you have to know how much you're using so you can compare and see what you're changing and change your habits and and do some quantitative assessment about which thing is going to be meaningful quantitatively, uh, which things are just kind of in the noise. And so I do think that, you know, efficiency gains, people talk about efficiency, but that's maybe a a 1% per year kind of trajectory. That's not very impactful and it can't go forever. Um, but you can, in the course of a year or two cut by factors of two, three, four and and so forth, that's gigantic. So there's a lot of kind of low hanging fruit there to take this, the pressure valve, uh, off the planet. And so I really hope that we can, we can do that. But again, it's not something that people are going to do unless they see the point and are thinking about more than themselves and their own, uh, you know, desires 
in the moment that that's that's then a challenge to get enough people to be kind of voluntarily uh willing to sort of scale back and there's some nice things that come along with it because if you don't buy as much stuff if you don't use as much in terms of resources you actually don't have to work as hard or as long and so there's some real benefits to kind of dialing it down yeah and i think sometimes people make those individual choices and that's really fulfilling for them but they get frustrated that they can't seem to convince other people to make similar decisions uh to to use less resources uh and we've seen some different responses to that as people look at the huge challenges we face and the dangerous road that we're on and the fact that they can't get a lot of people to listen to this kind of a message some people it seems like just get depressed uh and and fall into despair and kind of think what's the point and and some measure of feeling alarmed about the situation seems like it's a good thing well at the same time you mentioned some of that hope that you have what do you think is the the interplay between hope and fear or paranoia about our situation yeah i I think that's a very relevant uh topic and and um you know I think a lot of it really comes down to personality and how people handle how people internalize these kinds of messages and how people deal with challenges um for my personality that that awareness and that fear actually is, is um, constructive and it, it motivates me. It spurs me into action to think, well, what can I do? You know, what, what control do I have over this process? And, and, you know, I don't want to sit on the sidelines, um, put me in the game and what can I try? So, but I think that's not universal. And so, that same approach that worked for me, which is basically, you know, I, I studied this stuff and it frightened the bejesus out of me. And so I, I responded by taking it seriously. And, and yeah, I mean, there was some, some despair, but I just, I don't give up, you know, I'm a very persistent person, but, you know, I, I do encounter a lot of pushback sometimes if I, you know, write some story or, or propose some, some idea the person says, well, you need to, you need to provide a happy, you know, you need to end with hope. And I, I, I really want to push back against that at some level because it shouldn't be my job. I don't need to provide the hope. I need to provide the reason why we need to, you know, pay attention to this stuff. And if I provide hope, A, it's in bad faith because I can't promise you that things are going to work out well. And, and, you know, when it, when a parent says, trust me, it'll be all right. Sometimes I think you, or you see it in movies all the time. It's like, you can't say that <laughs> you have no control over this situation. So don't, don't make those empty promises. So to me, that sort of peddling hope seems like a, a false, uh, a move, but, but I, I do see the point that a lot of people will just despair if they don't think there's hope. So for me, the hope comes from just the fact that, you know, physics, as I said, physics itself is not precluding a satisfactory future where we're living in a harmonious state Uh, with nature. We have our basic needs met. We can still do, you know, intellectual pursuits. We haven't lost our scientific knowledge. We, We don't have to collapse. And I do have a lot of hope in the fact that my own personal reaction, if 
exported to large numbers of people would have a huge impact. And it wouldn't be the solution because I'm not living in that, you know, eventual success mode, but I'm just still part of the society. So I can't go all the way there. But, you know, that, that's one thing is that I think we need to realize that we don't get through this as individuals. We get through this as community and we get through this together. We're all in this together. We need to formulate responses together. We need to rely on each other. And we're not just going to each go off and individually kind of solve the problem. So we, we definitely need each other and we need to construct a world that gives us what we need without without sort of imperiling the, the distant future. So your message that you just brought up about hope, uh, Kellen and I kind of talk about and laugh about that a lot because every article, it seems, mainstream article out there will tell these just horrendous things about what's happening and, and these challenges with climate change and what a dire future we face, but it will always end the article with that sort of promise of like, there's still time, we can still do this, all we have to do is slow things down. And I think that enables a lot of people to turn off and say, okay, that's fine, they've got this under control, I can continue on business as usual. And I think there's a difference between ending on a hopeful note or a, a promising note versus um, a positive note. Because like you said, there are things that we can do. I think in our podcast, we talk a lot about damage control and mitigation. You know, we can lessen the effects of these things on the future, but it doesn't help anyone to say everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. It'll all work out. Right. I agree with that. Um, I get frustrated by articles that leave the common person with the impression that, well, that was uh, entertainment for, you know, I'm glad I spent that 10 minutes like now I can go talk to my friends about this thing that's, that's, you know, problematic, but, you know, um, I'm not going to have to actually do much about it because it seems like we're, we're, we're okay. So yeah, to me, I've, I've definitely stayed a little farther away from that and pushed back against the requirement that I provide some hopeful message because what got me to be active and aware about this stuff was not the message of hope. It was the message of fear. And I don't want to be a fear monger uh, because, you know, that's pretty deplorable. But, but when it's justified, when there's something to really be frightened of, we have to take it seriously and, you know, find the hope within yourself by what you do, by your actions, not by what somebody says might be going on or could happen. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it totally diffuses the priority and the, the, the call to action, if that's just a, a built-in feature of all these, these pieces. I think you described perfectly the way Kellen and I feel about it. And it's not often that we find people who are on that same page um, because there's that expectation of, of making people feel good. And we want people to feel enabled to do work to make changes, but we don't want to tell people that everything's okay. Um, I guess the last question that we'll ask here is just, do you have anything else that you would like to say to our audience? We've got several thousand people that listen to this and um, what, what would you say to them? I would say I'm very glad you're listening to these topics. I think they are very important. It's, you know, if you look at the longer arc of history, I think this century is going to be the most explosive in terms of changing our trajectory in a big way. And I hope it's in a, as I said, controlled and voluntary uh, way. But, you know, 
the eyes of the future will be on us this century and how we handle this problem. It's, it's really one of the most defining moments in the human experiment. And I'd like it to go well. Of course, if we do poorly, nobody will ever know. <laughs> this, you know the, the worst case, the, the history books, you know, there, there are going to be history books. And so, um, but let's not do that. Um, so I think it's, it's great to, to be plugged into these issues. Um, you know, I don't want, I don't want, you know, the, the boy who cried wolf is, is kind of a problem. So if you're okay, here's one thing just, I think is relevant that the, the biggest pet peeve of mine, the thing that pushes my buttons the most is the combination of authoritative and wrong. So I'm fine. If you're authoritative, if it's correct, like if you're talking about the um, Maxwell Boltzmann distribution in physics, you can be as authoritative as you want. I'm going to be like, yep, that's the way it is. Uh, and you can be wrong. That's fine. We're always, we're often wrong. And, and as long as we hedge our statements with, I think, or I believe, or it seems that, you know, it's not hard to sort of soften your message. And so for the people who would listen to this, this podcast, I would say it might be useful to avoid that combination of authoritative and at least if not wrong, uh, not provable, right? I, nobody can prove what is going to look, things are going to look like in a hundred years. And so just be careful about the certainty, but express sort of a genuine um, concern about what, what things are, are plausible and credible. And uh, just, just, I think you can turn people off by, by being too certain and and uh, that just sort of drives polarization that's a timely message and we just did an episode two weeks ago on how to approach people with this conversation people close to you the types of things that might be good to say and not say and i think that's a uh, that perfectly fits in there so thank you for that uh, professor this has been so amazing we're so grateful for you for spending the time here with us uh, i think we've learned a lot and it's, it's been really, really great. Okay, well, I definitely enjoyed it. And, you know, uh, one hour is still too short to talk about such an important topic. So, you know, it's never uh, never a burden for me to, to discuss this at any length. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave Podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. 